Peter and John didn't realise this was David Beckham Sunday while they were away, so. And whether you're interested in football or not, whether or not you want to hear anything about David Beckham, it seems that nowadays it's just impossible to avoid him. Beckham, along with his well-known wife, Posh and Bex, as they're affectionately known, are household names. Celebrity icons whose every move is scrutinised and usually ends up on the news. Whether it's Beckham's latest hairstyle, Victoria's latest shopping spree, speculation about what name they're going to come up for their next baby, Brooklyn and Romeo so far, or even reports relating to football, which apparently is what David Beckham actually does. It was a shock then for most people when only a week and a half ago, Beckham's club, Manchester United, decided to sell him. Selling arguably their best player. And debate raged. Why had Manchester United sold David Beckham, this icon in the prime of his footballing career? Was it for the money? Most things normally are. Well, possibly in part, but probably not in full. For the £25 million, Beckham's reputed fee, is relatively small change compared to his club's riches. So was there another reason then? Well, one frequently offered hypothesis is quite interesting. Whether or not it's true, you need to check it out for yourself. It suggested that the real reason behind Beckham's exit revolved around one small but significant issue. In a word, attitude. For while the player's ability on the field could hardly be doubted, his off-the-field lifestyle and, as a repercussion, his attitude towards the team was causing concern, at least in the eyes of his manager. Alex Ferguson, canny Scott that he is, had decided that David Beckham had simply become too big for his boots. Now, of course, whether this was the real reason behind Beckham's transfer, we'll probably never know. David Beckham wasn't available for comment. And you may also be wondering, what's the relevance of David Beckham to what we're looking at this evening? Well, simply this. His story shows the importance of attitude. Attitudes are, in fact, more important than we often imagine. So important that in the world of business, and football certainly is big business, Attitude can come even before ability, and a bad attitude can lead to expendability, even if you're David Beckham. And this would really make us think. For if attitudes in the secular arena are of such great importance, how much more significant should they be for us as Christians? For just as in football, but for us this is no game, as Christians, we're called not to live as separate individuals, but as a body of people, one team, one body, what the Bible calls the church. And if a football team is affected by the attitude of its players, how much more do our attitudes have an impact upon our team? Often overlooked, attitudes in a church that are out of place can be its Achilles heel, its small but fatal weakness. Everything else in the garden may look nice and rosy, but attitudes 
that are out of check are likely to bring a thorn of disunity and leading to poor credibility out with. And so this evening, we turn to the important issue of attitudes and seek to do a short attitude assessment together. We'll be asking what kind of attitude we should have as a Christian, and of course, we'll be relying on God's Word, the Bible, as our guide. So if you'd like to turn with me to a reading for this evening, it's found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, it's page 1179 if you're using the few Bibles. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And this is God's word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And let's just ask for God's blessing as we come to understand his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us this evening. And Lord, we thank you that it doesn't just deal with the external aspects of our behavior or our theology, but it goes right into the deep places, into the thoughts of our heart, our very spirit, our very attitudes. And so, Lord, we pray that as we would come to this this evening, Lord, that you would speak to us, that, Lord, you would address those areas that you want to speak to us about and help us, Lord, to be obedient to your word as we go from here. Help me as I speak and help others I say, listen, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we are breaking from our regular services where we've been looking through the book of 1 Corinthians together. And this evening we're moving from the congregation of Corinth to a different congregation, the church in Philippi. And in order to get the point of what Paul is saying in these Uh, verses that we've just read, we need to get a little bit of the background about what might have been going on in this church in Philippi. Without doubt, on reading the letter, we can see that the Philippians were pretty much a church focused on the right sorts of things. They were interested in Paul, when others seemed to have lost interest. 
They were passionate about the gospel. They were committed to Christ. And indeed, they were even willing to suffer for their faith. However, their zealousness as a church did not exclude them from facing two significant issues. On one hand, they clearly faced outside pressures. If we just step back a verse from what we read in verse 30 of chapter 1, we see that they were suffering for their faith, enduring persecution. And it's because they faced this challenge that throughout the letter, Paul reminds them of his own sufferings, that he points them to the vision and goal of knowing Christ and the prize that they should run for. And of course, it's also why he speaks so much throughout the letter of the significance of rejoicing in the Lord, living with a joy that the world and its circumstances cannot take away. On the other hand, there seemed to be a second problem issue, which was likely to be more dangerous and potentially more damaging. It came not from the outside, but emerged from inside. And it seems that in some measure at least, there were some inside tensions, rumblings of disharmony in the church, which threatened to ruin their unity and discredit their gospel witness. Now, we're not quite sure just how big these problems actually were. Maybe uh, they were just beginning and Paul wanted to put a stop to them. Maybe they were more advanced. Either way, it's no accident that Paul spends just about the whole of chapter 2 speaking on the theme of unity. And if we had read on into chapter 4, we would have seen Paul addressing a particular situation. Two key women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, who were in a dispute. And it's in answer to these two issues, and particularly the second one, that Paul begins in this passage that we read by offering a reasoned response. It is two parts. Paul firstly reminds the Philippians of the way in which God chooses to live in relation to them. If you read verse 1 with me. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Paul is basically describing here God's unity and fellowship with the Philippian Christians. You see, Paul reminds the Philippians, You are united with Christ. You are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Day by day, God chooses to live in unity with you. God, if you like, puts up with you. And far more, he loves you. He encourages you, presumably in despair. And he comforts you, presumably in times of sorrow. But you see, there's implications to this. And in almost true lawyer style, Paul carries from verse 1 into verse 2. He says, if this is the case in verse 1, then it should follow that. Verse 2. If God chooses to live in fellowship and unity with you, you, says Paul, should live in unity and fellowship with one another. Your aim should be unity. It's the least you can aim for since God's desire and decision is to live in fellowship with you. So the issue in this church is this harmony. And the reasoned response of Paul is that we should aim for unity as a church, mirroring, if you like, God's unity with us. But how are we to actually do this? What will be required for this to work? Well, this is where it really gets surprising. 
Because Paul doesn't turn to theology, as he does in other letters. Neither does he turn to ethics. Do this or that, and the problem will sort itself out. Instead, Paul, Paul points them and us to the importance of attitudes. To meet the high standards that he's outlined in verse 2, that we will be of like mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So point one, we're going to have to have the Christian attitude. Now, for Paul and for us today, the idea of attitudes and mindset was a complicated business. There would have been many views around in his time as to what sort of attitudes were socially acceptable and even desirable. And so also today, we hear about all sorts of different attitudes. Consumer attitudes, male and female attitudes, attitudes of youth culture, positive mental attitudes, consumer attitudes, and so on. But what, according to Paul, is that attitude which should characterize the particular group of people known as Christians? Well, in true teacher style, Paul defines the Christian attitude by first showing them what it is not, the negative, and then showing them what it is, the positive. So first, the negative. Says Paul, the Christian attitude does not involve selfish ambition, found in verse 3. What Paul means here by selfish ambition isn't tricky or ambiguous. Selfish ambition speaks of an attitude where we are only self-concerned. And the key word being only. You see, if we have selfish ambition, there are two effects. We will only consider ourselves in what we do, and of course, we won't consider others. At its most blatant and obvious, it's a flagrant trampling upon others for the sake of something we want. At its more subtle, it is where we perhaps use others for our own advantage. Now, of course, we may think that we often see this attitude in the world of business and our materialistic society, but don't think that this attitude cannot surface in church. I speak from my own experience to say that if you're a busy Christian, then it's all too easy to become focused on your own concerns, perhaps a bit too much. Before we know it, we become focused on our needs. Everything's about us. It's about our struggles. It's about our needs, what God is teaching me. If I'm listening to someone, I relate it to something from my own experience. It's always about me. Subtly, we slide into selfishness, and we only ever do something if it benefits us. But there's a second negative attitude which is far from the Christian standard, and that's vain conceit. Often the two attitudes, of course, are connected, but they're not the same. Whereas selfish ambition focuses on myself and ignores others, vain conceit elevates myself and looks down on others. Instead of not considering others at all, our problem is that we do consider others, but consider them good for nothing we have, you see, an attitude of superiority. That our way is best, our opinion is infallible, we're never wrong, and others are just not up to our standards. And again, don't assume that this attitude can't be present among us made church people. The sad fact is, it's more than possible. And I'm sure there's 
probably too many stories of churches around the country that have split, not over issues of doctrine, but at their root, issues of simple base pride. Two leaders, for example, who just couldn't get on. And of course, vain conceit may be even more subtle. So much so that we might actually be unconscious of the fact that we are, to use a Glasgow phrase, a bit full of it. Like this cartoon of the preacher who began his sermon with the woeful line. This morning's sermon is on humility and in my opinion it's one of the finest pieces ever written. We all need to be aware, and perhaps especially those in the pulpit like this, against such an attitude. But Paul goes on now to present the positive. What characterises a truly Christian attitude? And if we were to sum it up and choose a word for it, we would probably call it humility. But what does this humility mean? Especially today when being humble gets such a bad press and is greatly misconstrued. Well, it means, first of all, looking up to others. Read with me verse 3. Paul says, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, this verse is quite easily misunderstood. It's actually an emphatic contrast to what Paul has just said about vain conceit. You see, the person who is conceited looks down on everyone else. However, Paul says, your attitude shouldn't be like that at all. What Paul is saying, in effect, is you shouldn't look down on others. If anything, it should be the other way around. Consider others better than yourselves. Paul is speaking here, essentially, of having a servant spirit. So that, for one example, it means that leaders should have a servant heart. A servant attitude. Which doesn't mean that leaders cease to lead and follow everyone else. Where would all the leaders be? But that the way they lead is with a servant attitude. And at times, yes, they may put away the chairs and make the coffee because that's the kind of people that they are. But secondly, humility also means looking out for others. If you read with me again in verse 4, Paul says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And again, this is in contrast, but this time, to selfish ambition. A person who is selfish has no time for the interests of others. Yet the Christian, says Paul, shouldn't be like that. For while Paul says, if we read him carefully, that we shouldn't ignore our own needs, he does say that we should be sure to look beyond them looking out for others and their needs. We need to see where others are at, hear where they are, help them practically if we can, and of course pray for them, always. This is an aspect of humility. But a couple of words of caution here, so that we don't misunderstand the humility that Paul is talking about. And the first one is this, this humility does not mean that we think poorly of ourselves. We are told in Scripture, of course, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, indeed, in sober, honest judgment. But we're also told, for example, that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. And that's hard to do if you hate yourself. Instead, Paul is just emphatically saying, in your relationships with others, be humble. 
A second note of caution is this, that this kind of humility does not mean uncertainty. It's unfortunately become fashionable in the day in which we live to equate certainty with arrogance and humility with having no strong opinion at all, especially where matters of religion are concerned. So that, for one example, if we claim that Jesus is the only way to God, others will quickly label us as arrogant. But the logic is faulty. You see, according to the Bible, you can be completely humble and absolutely sure. You can be completely humble and yet absolutely sure. The greatest example, of course, is Jesus himself, who taught with such great authority and yet was very humble. So let's not buy into the lie that if we are humble, we will never be able to stand up for what we believe in. What it does mean is that as we do it, we'll be careful to have the right sort of attitude. Now, we could stop there this evening and the message is as clear as day as Paul has outlined it to us. Our attitude as Christians should be one of humility. However, Paul doesn't finish there. And neither will we for at least a short while longer. Because you see, Paul must have realised that the problem for the Philippians, as I would imagine it is for us most of the time, was not that they didn't know what sort of attitude they should have, but it was that they struggled to practice it. The difficulty, if you like, is in the doing. And so for their inspiration and further instruction, and for ours, Paul now moves from the Christian attitude to the attitude of Christ. point to the attitude of Christ, verses 5 to 11 this time. These verses, 5 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2, are some of the most incredible words in all of Scripture. They were possibly a Christian hymn, and indeed earlier tonight we sang a song largely based on the words of this. And what's contained in them, of course, is far too much to pack into a few short minutes. But what is the thrust of what Paul is saying here? Well, Paul now turns to Philippians' eyes to the one who should be their role model, their example, their inspiration. A role model not just for life and conduct, but even to the depth and extent of their attitudes, the thoughts of their hearts. So, what was the attitude of Christ? Well, similarly to what Paul has just been talking about, Jesus' attitude was one of supreme humility, stated in verse 8. And this humility, the great thing about it, wasn't something that was closed for inspection, some inward disposition, but was demonstrated outwardly in the things that Jesus said, in the things he gave up, in the position he willingly took up, in his willingness to be obedient, in the price he so willingly paid. Christ's humility was clearly shown in his servanthood, according to Verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Which perhaps doesn't seem so amazing in itself until you consider the preceding verse, verse 6. That the one who served was also the one who was God, in very nature, with all the privileges that status brought. And yet these were given up. For unlike Adam and Eve way back in the garden, Jesus did not exploit his equality with God, although he was truly unequal. 
but instead chose to make himself nothing. He was, as we sometimes think, the servant king. Christ's humility was also seen, not just in his servanthood, but in his submission. For according to verse 8, this same, this same Jesus willingly obeyed the will of his Father to become human and be obedient to the extent that he was willing to die, and further, obedient not only to die, but to die the most despicable and despised death of his day, death on a cross. What humility. And Christ's humility was also seen, not just in his uh, submission and his servanthood, but also in his sacrifice. For as we read, Christ's humility led the Creator Himself to be crucified at the hand of His creation. His humility, you see, cost Him something. Indeed, as ours may do today, there was sacrifice. For in an arrogant world, when we take the low place, we often are trampled upon. And so we get this incredible picture of the attitude of humility seen in Christ. And yet if we stop there at verse 8, we might be impressed by Christ's attitude, but a little disheartened. For we would conclude that having a humble attitude leads us to nothing but destruction. But that's not the case at all. Instead, as we read in verses 9 to 11, after Jesus had done all these things, his attitude of humility was vindicated. Christ lowered himself down, but then God raised him up, high up. Did you notice all the highs in verses 9 to 11? Given the highest name, raised to the highest place, endowed with the highest supremacy that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And in that place he receives the highest praise and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this is our encouragement for when having a humble attitude seems tough and seems to be getting us nowhere. We're encouraged by the fact that Jesus' attitude was vindicated as the best way, as God's way. And we get a glimpse, I think, of a biblical principle, which is this. That the way which seems to be up is actually down, and the way which seems to be down is actually up, or in the better-known rendering of Jesus, Whoever humbles himself, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And this is a, an eternal principle that one day God will make unequivocally true. It may not always be worked out in our lifetimes. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it will be the case. God will work it out in the here and now. Sometimes in God's providence it doesn't happen in the here and now. Like Christ we may not see the vindication of our attitude before our death. Christ didn't. But one day, God out of his grace and not our deserving will raise up the humble and lower down the proud. And so as we conclude this evening in this short attitude assessment, as we look at our attitudes, what sort of attitudes as Christians should we have According to God's word this evening, I hope it's been clear, our attitude should be one of humility. It's a humble spirit that has been the calling of the church since the time of Christ. You remember it was impressed on those first disciples shortly before Jesus' death when he wrapped a towel round his waist 
and went round about his disciples, washing their feet. It was something that normally a slave would do. And certainly not an esteemed teacher like Christ, certainly not the Son of God. And ever since Jesus did that act, as a church, we've been called to be foot washers, metaphorically speaking. We've to have this servant attitude, this willingness, if you like, to wash one another's feet. And as we do this, we're following Christ. We're imitating Him. You see, this evening, I've split up our sermon into two points, the Christian attitude and the attitude of Christ. But the conclusion is simply this. They shouldn't be. Two points, I mean. When things are working properly, the Christian attitude should be the attitude of Christ. Our attitude should be an echo of His. As Paul so well sums it up in verse 5 of chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So when measured against the attitude of Christ, how are we doing as individuals and as a church? Do people know us for our attitude of humility or for our selfishness and pride? At Charlotte Chapel, are we known among all the other definitions that can be given to us as a humble church? Is our humility every bit as notorious as any ability that we might have? How are we doing, quite simply, in terms of our foot washing? Which leads us to our final question as we go from here this evening. Will we stand on each other's toes or will we wash one another's feet? Will we stand on each other's toes or will we choose, like Christ, to wash one another's feet? Let's respond to God's word and...